Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Uh, I have to say I loved Dick before I met him because if you, if you watch his shows, you know, somehow his character is just spilling out all over the, that product. It's just, it's so beautifully crafted and, and, you know, and beautifully done. But here are th- three things I didn't know about Dick until today because I had to do some homework for this. So, number one, he won an Emmy. Tell me if this is wrong. Uh, he won an Emmy nomination for the first script he ever wrote for Hill Street Blues. Is that right? television script. Pretty good. Another thing is, I found out that he really loves westerns. You know, like television westerns. Yeah. And he produced um, Bury My Heart at, at Wounded Knee. Is that right? I didn't know that. I love westerns too, so um, after this, we're going to, you know, over martinis, we're going to, like, have a contest as to who can sing the most television western theme songs. <laughs> okay, and the last and final thing that I learned about today, well, I learned a lot, but the third thing I want to share with you right now is that um, in his advertising days, which was, were before his television days, he created the famous campaign for those of you who are, like, older than most of you, um, created the famous campaign for national airlines, I'm Cheryl, fly me. It's true. Um, As a matter of fact, one little insight about fly me, that I was about 23, it was my second job in advertising, and we came up with this because the agency was about to lose the account, and... We came up with the idea of, it was all based on the stewardesses, I'm Cheryl, fly me, I'm Susie, we put the names on the front of the planes. And people in New York were kind of horrified, and they said, well, if you can sell it, fly to Miami, and we flew to Miami and saw Mr. Maytag, who owned National Airlines, who was the washing machine air, and we walked into a conference room, and there were 20 guys in suits, and Bud Maytag at the end in a Hawaiian shirt and shorts, and we put all these displays up, I'm Cheryl, I'm Susie, and the executives in suits looked absolutely horrified, and he sat there and then smiled and said, oh, I like that. And he said, but young man, isn't that grammatically incorrect? Shouldn't it be, I'm Cheryl, fly with me? And I said, technically correct, but it's the rhythm of the line. He went, oh, fine, never got it. And it was an incredibly successful campaign. Anyway, what we are about to show you is the original pilot made in 1989 for CBS, because Law & Order had the unique distinction, which I think has never been matched, of having been sold to three different networks before it actually got on the air. It was sold originally to Fox with Barry Diller, who gave us 13 in the room and then called back the next day and reneged and said, I must have been crazy. This isn't a Fox show. So we went to CBS. They bought the pilot and then didn't, it was told, I was told, oh, it's going to be on. Don't worry about it. And the last day it wasn't on, obviously. And uh, Kimmel Masters, who was running CBS at that point, apparently the night before it said, no, there are no breakout stars. So. We said, okay. Went to NBC, 
And one of the things that is sort of noteworthy about the pilot is that we shot it in 16 to give it a much more gritty look than was common in the late 80s. And when NBC finally bought the show, Brandon Tortikoff called me and said, oh, you got to come over here. They're very upset in technical services. And I went down to the bowels of Burbank and the three stories underground, and there were these guys in there saying, we can't put this on television. And I said, why not? He said, it looks like you dragged the negative through the mud. This is not broadcast quality. It looks like it's a college TV show or something. I said, well, it's actually the way we planned it. Brandon was vastly amused by this. He said, well, we're going to run it that way. But, you know, I thought you should see what the experts thought of your brilliant idea. <laughs> um, that was also when I told him that I would really like it if we could run it in black and white. And he said, we'll put a super on the, on the first uh, when it comes up and says, if you want to see this in black and white, turn off your color dial. <laughs> so that didn't fly either. But the pilot is something that is sort of an historical artifact uh, at this point, and I hope you enjoy it. I think you will see that it's exactly the same show that it became, and that's one of the most satisfying aspects of it. Thanks. Hope you like it. Well, that was great. I mean, right. to say, any great series evolves from the pilot to, you know, as it goes and as you learn what works and what doesn't. This was so fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's, it's, it does hold up. Boy, it's just loud. How's that? Better? You're okay. Okay. No, it's, it is an old friend that yeah. worked. Yeah. And... It's fun to see who was in it, too. Yeah. Bill Macy. Bill Macy looks 12 years old. Yeah, well, <laughs> so does Chris Noth. Chris Noth was cute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's inspired the Logan Lusters. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it was fabulous. So um, your ears must be burning because this was all dick all day. <laughs> were, were most of you here for today? or? Yes. Yeah. Oh, good, okay. Um, just to, to, to tell you a couple of things you missed from today, I mean, you know, it was great. It was very, the panels were terrific and everything. But Benjamin Bratton did say that Law & Order is a, as addictive as crack cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> he did. And also, I learned that it's been said that you destroy more sex lives than any other show that's ever been aired because women especially can't stop watching your damn show. It's true. We got a lot of complaints. So, 11 o'clock. Are you guilty about this? I'm, uh... No, I'm not. Actually, it's also one of the secrets of uh, 10 o'clock television is one of the reasons I'm convinced the show repeats and continues to repeat as well as it does is the fact that most people cannot remember what happened at the end? <laughs> How did this one end? I don't know. It's was asleep. Well, can you play? There's how many hundreds of shows that they have to like, uh, well, think I about? Well, I think 437. Well, come on. Who can remember number 283? No, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, I want to talk about the quality uh, first because there is no brand, there's no viable business, there's no anything that we, a lot of which we talked about today, about the brand of the shows and the, and the business, uh, uh, the incredible, uh, um, you know, business that 
they have engendered. But none of that uh, goes anywhere unless the quality of the show is what it is. Look, I'm telling you this. You know this as well as I do. First of all, it's always the writing stupid. Always the writing um, stupid. And <laughs> the other aspect is the toughest thing in television, if you are lucky enough to come up with something that works, is quality control. Absolutely. It's so hard to get anybody to work at the level that is sort of a base requirement to do a good show. I mean, I think the thing that I actually do better than anybody around me is hire obsessive people. I've got more obsessive people working for me than I think anybody in the business. And it's Arthur Fournay was on the panels. Is he was. Basically, the, I think the only person aside from me who has actually seen every episode of every Law and Order made, and he has saved an inordinate number of them. I mean, he is known or was known by uh, most of the actors in New York as the Butcher of Burbank. <laughs> uh, oh, God. And I remember Chris Noth one day went absolutely crazy. He said, he cut out the best part of my performance. I said, the show was four minutes long. What was the best part of your performance? He said, I was breathing, and my, the breathing was significant in the playing of the scene. I said, breathe faster. <laughs> <laughs> well, I noticed from the pilot to later years, the scenes are a lot shorter now, right? Well, actually, they're not, but there was the cutting pattern for the show was being established, but the perfect Law & Order cut was, you know, oh, okay, yeah, you say Joe Smith was here on Tuesday night, cut to Joe Smith, where were you on Tuesday night? Oh, I see. And you can see it's, it's instructive for anybody to look at their own shows because the one thing that I was going like this is there are some attenuated scenes there. It yes. is not the same yeah, cutting yeah. pattern, but there are a lot more scenes. I think there were something like 62 scenes in the pilot. Yeah. It's one reason we didn't get to the trial. <laughs> it's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I could guess, but you know the show a lot better than me. I could guess what the key elements are that, like, without which the series would not be as brilliant as it is. I mean, what you know, what the essence uh, of the series um, is. But I, I want to hear it from you. Well, I've said for a long time that the the perfect episode, the paradigm episode never got written, it still hasn't been written on L.A. either, that the perfect episode to me would be one where all six of the regulars have different points of view on exactly the same set of facts, and they're all right. As you hear each argument, you go, oh, yeah, that's true. Wow. That's, that would be the perfect episode. Yeah. The secret, I think, of the show's interest to audiences is that it is unexpected. I mean, there are... As Jerry Orbach said, it is actually, the New York Times also said it, that the best article I think ever written about the show is about 10 years ago in the Sunday Times Magazine. It was a huge article. And the guy spent about a month and a half on various sets and talking to people. And halfway through the article, I'm reading this with delight on a Saturday night, and he said, uh, he wrote, the dirty little secret of Law & Order is that all the episodes are exactly the same. I said, he got it. Jeez, that's kind of scary. Is that the dirty little secret? <laughs> it is. That it is. Jerry Orbach said it's like a Catholic high mass. That there is an absolute 
rhythm in 96% of the shows. The arrest takes place at the end of the second act. Wow. There is a third act twist that, you know, this is what stood up very successfully over, you know, one of the interesting things is it's a six-person ensemble. There were 28 people in the show. Yeah. Wow. So that, I think the secret is, again, quality control and repetitious, the repetitious nature of the format, which is like comfort food. It's like this chicken is why and mashed it's so potatoes addictive. and green peas. Yeah. It's so addictive because there's a predictability about the format, but a total unpredictability about the story. Well, that, but that's, the, that's why it's always the writing. Because Damn, if you're you get, clever. Oh, no. <laughs> what's really, when the whole show is when you get a script in that somebody does not understands the show, understands the characters, but you're getting a straight line story because then it's really a procedural and procedural accuracy over that being the only part of the show that's accurate gets really boring. I mean, it's, it's not... Totally, yeah. You need a moral conundrum, and that was the secret. The, it, it, the ideal twist is a moral conundrum that... Somebody does something unexpected that completely throws your point of view a kilter with what they've been doing, a new suspect, but the rhythm of the show never changed. I mean, it is pretty amazing that that it's is, amazing. it's the it's the same rhythm, it's just got a little quicker. It's amazing. But like, as a viewer, um, I also think that, that um, one of the, like, the keys to the success of the show is it's, its view of humanity or something. And I, I have to say, it's kind of your view. It's well, got to be part of... I mean, it was like, you're... Behind this show is a, is a hope and a wish and a, you know, whatever, desire, a belief, you know, a hopeful belief in the, in the justice system. It is, it, it, it is a... If you talk to Jerry Spence, who I've known for years... He has a very different point of view on the justice system and will literally hold his head and say, God, you, don't you understand what cops and prosecutors do? I said, you're a defense attorney. There's a huge <laughs> difference. And I think I do believe that, you know, I've, I've met an awful lot of cops and prosecutors and I'd say 99% of them are in those positions because they have, it seems like a cliche, but a passion for justice. I mean... Yeah. You can't pay people to do this. Any assistant DA in New York can walk out and triple his salary on Friday afternoon by going into, you know, becoming a defense attorney. Right. And the lifers that uh, Michael Moriarty and Sam portrayed are guys that are on a mission. And that kind of, I, I find it literally heroic. I mean, there are people... But I can feel that you do. Oh, I it's, do. It's all over the series. Yeah, and I think that's part of it. And also, the the... I don't know, the, the basic kind of faith in humanity, flawed as it is, to kind of try to do the right thing most of the time. Except for the bad guys. Well, this is... But even the bad guys. The, well, the bad guys always have an excuse. <laughs> there is something that he, you know, abused in childhood or something. There is yeah. usually something that set them on that path. But it is... I've actually never thought about this before, but I think that when I look back... I'm half Catholic, half Jewish. I can feel guilty about anything. <laughs> almost the entire writing staff has been either Catholics or Jews. There aren't a lot of Protestants that have worked on the show. 
and it sounds very black and white, but it is kind of black and white. I think that there is a core morality in the show that, you know, we've listened to all the excuses over the years. The bottom line is you can't kill people. Yeah. That's kind of yeah. what we take away from all of them. No matter what the excuse. No, I know. So there's this morality, basic morality, without being simple about it, a basic That's humanity, while recognizing the flaws. That of people the, are flawed. Exactly. That there's, that's the reality, and there are, you can be sympathetic to what drove people to do something, say, that's really terrible, gee, I can understand why you still can't kill them. Yeah. It's, and also, there's not a, a reliance on violence. I know that you don't, you, you have a thing where you don't show it happening. You no, really show the aftermath. It's but the you effect, and, you know, we violated the rule uh, very occasionally, that for the first 18 years, the only person who ever fired a weapon was a patha, and that was once. And some things happened, especially, you know, there are different rhythms, and we, you know, the cops, though, don't go out and shoot people yeah. unless it's a yeah. really dire necessity, because the reality is most cops get through all 20 years and never fire their weapon. Especially homicide detectives. I, I said to one that I'd known for a long time, don't you, you know, does it bother you when you're going out on a case? He said, what do you mean, am I worried? No, they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> it happened already. Yeah. <laughs> and th so that plus the, your, your, you know, your, the diversity of your casts, you know, the fact that you have a lot of women, you know, and, and I don't know, um, there's a, I'm not generally a, a viewer of what I call boy TV. But this is, you know what I mean? Well, no, I know exactly what but you mean. But this is not that boy is, TV. That was to Warren Littlefield's credit. Did you hear that on the, what he said this I, morning? I did. It's, and it's absolutely true. After the third season, he said, I'm giving you a cancellation notice a year early. I went, what are, you, what are you talking about? He said, there are no women watching the show. He said, you've got to put women in the show. And that's and when, you did, a and pay, you did yeah, Patha and Joe Hennessy. By the way, what was Warren F Littlefield thinking, telling you uh, you're going to get canceled. Because, like, wait a minute. Because <laughs> <laughs> do you know what the ratings were like in the third season? We were sort of limping along, not low enough to get canceled, but not high enough to be on anybody's, you know. The one thing that I can say was remarkably consistent over the 20 years that I think there was one week in that 1997 where we got a lot of promo. That was it. We never got promo because... and. Warren actually was very honest. He said, "Why we don't have to promo it. They come anyway. You know, we've got other problems. <laughs> Thanks. I've always said that, like, you know, when people sometimes say, I'm sure they've said to you, they've said to me, like, why is there so much crap on television? I say, you don't understand. <laughs> no, you don't understand. It's a miracle when... Something uh, works. When something works. It's a miracle. It's, it is a miracle because it's like I, all, I have certain things that... Over the years, I found out, don't do anything that's blatantly political because you've already pissed off half the audience yeah, in the first three minutes. So don't do that. You know, it's it's very tough to uh, win any argument that involves women and their rights. I mean, this is we, the demonstration of how to live. I think is much more powerful. The the characters, the women, the only discussion of why women were there actually was when Liz Rome left and she got fired and she went into 
Fred Thompson's office and said, is this because I'm a lesbian? And that was a decided choice because it had never been mentioned. Yeah. And I said to her when she was leaving, I said, do you want to go out with a bang or a whimper? And she said, oh, a bang. I said, how about this? She said, oh, I like that. <laughs> and I think it's the most memorable part of her entire you know, three years on the yeah, show. It's a great exit. It's a really good exit. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you have this wonderful show. And I want to get into, like, uh, how many of you guys, I don't know how many industry people we have here versus students versus other people. Um, do you guys know how it goes, like how, how you pitch, how a show gets pitched and sold and, and, and what happens with, huh? <laughs> do you want to hear a little bit about that from Dick? Well, this show, as I said earlier, was the only show that I know that was sold to three different networks. It's amazing, yeah. It's uh, and when Barry Diller ended up buying Universal, the television assets, we had uh, lunch and I said, you do remember? He said, yeah, of course I remember. You should get down on your knees and thank me. If it had gone on Fox, you would have been canceled eight years ago. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true. So. But I mean, just kind of, just to, because you know, we have a mixed audience here of like some people who understand. You know, yeah, well, you, the, the, it's the right, uh, television is like, farming because you planned in the, in the early summer and then hopefully in the fall they come up and you know it's but it is absolutely ritualistic the time when you go out is you know the studios the networks reopen in late may after the upfronts and then they're basically open until september later for comedies of course, oh, of course. but uh you go in and it, depending on what level in your career you are, you're either pitching towards to a development person um, or you're de pitching to the head of development and eventually you work your way up where you're pitching hopefully to the head of the network. Um, the volume is so unbelievable that I mean, what, what do they get? 3,000 pitches? I, oh, I mean, yeah. the pitch period is like Thousands of pitches. Thousands and, and thousands. And, and these are literally. not off the street. This is never off the street. So no, these are pitches these are from agents working, from working, working writers. writers, agents, producers, you know, um, who have credibility. So it's this huge funnel that's going towards this very narrow opening because the, the other thing is that no matter how good the development is, and this is something that network heads usually learn after their second or third year, that oh, my, the babies always look beautiful in the spring, and then they grow up and are put on when they're about 13 years old, and they either survive or die. And the other thing that's a problem is that you can only, the old, what was it, you could change three hours maximum a season. The last couple of seasons on NBC, ABC, you see, you know, seven hours changing. And how do you tell that many people that, there's a new show on, let alone where it is, when the networks that are putting on the most new shows are the ones in the most trouble, so their promo time is not equal to the number one or two network. It's this vicious cycle that makes it almost impossible for anything to work. So there are thousands of pitches every pilot season. This gets narrowed down to like maybe how many script commitments? Uh, Probably uh, 200. A couple of hundred script commitments, and then, and then from that December, couple hundred, there are like, uh, what? Ten. 10, well, 12 pilots? Depends on the desperation of the network. Yeah. But 10, 10 or 20 pilots. Yeah. 
10 to 20 pilots. And of those 10 or 20 pilots, maybe, I don't know, three or well, four? Well, maybe five will get on, or five yeah. or six. So it's like... In the fall and in the spring, back It's order. a miracle that anything happens, and it's a further miracle when the thing that happens, the show that gets made, is a brilliant show. Cause well, it's, I, think that, I don't think it's changed in the entire history of television. It's about 95% of everything that goes on TV never makes a dime. So in the case of your pilot... Was there a point in time when you kind of knew in your gut that you had something, that you had a tiger by the tail? Oh, yeah. We thought that, I mean, I was the most surprised guy in New York when the phone rang the night before the CBS schedule said, you fell off the, the board. I went, uh, what? Kim thinks there are no breakout stars. I said, no, it's not ensemble. That's, That's but, the point. Uh, it didn't get on. And I was really surprised because all week we've been telling, oh, they think this is... But in your gut, did you know you had a hit? No, I was desperate just to get it picked up. I mean, <laughs> it was dead. You know, it's one of the few pilots that survived into another year, and that was really Kerry McCluggage, who was president of uh, UTV at that point, just said, I cannot let this die. And... We went in finally to uh, NBC, and it was Brandon and Warren and Perry watched this. And Brandon said, yeah, that's really good. How are you going to do that again? And I said, give me six scripts, and I'll prove it to you. And we wrote six scripts, and he ordered 13. <coughs> but I don't, think, I don't think there was, at that point, any show that had ever written six scripts to prove that it was a series either. Mm. So, you know, it was, it worked out better than anybody could have possibly expected or hoped. Given its birth. The, you know, people say, did you know it was going to run 20 years? I said, I didn't think it was going to run 20 episodes. I mean, <laughs> no, when it went on, it was, it, and that is Brent, to Brandon's credit. He kept the show on because everybody at NBC wanted it dead. I mean, especially the sales department because we had... In 1990, the abortion clinic bombing episode, which I still think is probably the best pure episode we ever made, had $900,000 in advertiser pullouts, which in 1990 meant there were no advertisers. Wow, yeah. It was all PSAs and uh, promos. And that could scare the hell out of the network. Oh, <laughs> no revenue? Yes, that's <laughs> kind of scary. <laughs> oh, let's keep making more of these. <laughs> was not, uh, not what an intelligent businessman would have done. So then you, you said that you had, as, as, so now the show's on the air, it's on NBC, and as time goes by, stuff happens, things change. Um, um, you said that there were, you went through six uh, changes in ownership? Yeah, six and owners, eight, and, and eight, I think eight or, it may, eight or nine administrations. Six different owners oh, at yeah. the network and eight different administrations. Lou, then, uh, let's see, Lou Mishusta, Seagram's, Barry Diller, NBC, Comcast. Amazing. I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> and the, but you wrote it out. And the other change was, the big change was the FinCEN rules changed. Well, that changed everything. Changed everything. everything. Do you guys uh, know what that, the change in the financial in, uh, syndication? The financial, the financial syndication rules used to be in place to prevent vertical integration and monopolistic practices, which meant that the network could not own their own programming. They could be the gatekeeper, but they couldn't own they couldn't the product own that was going through the gate as well. Because, boy, wouldn't that be too much power? That changed in 1990. 
what, six, six seven, five, three. three. And what happened is that the heads of the networks went down, and it is absolutely analogous to the heads of the tobacco companies who went down and raised their hands and said, oh, nicotine isn't addictive. And the TV heads went down and said, oh, no, we wouldn't buy from ourselves. We'd buy the best shows. Yes. Not. Yeah, right. <laughs> so. But how did you ride that out? How did it affect you? Well, <laughs> we didn't have to worry about financial syndication rules. The show wasn't making any money at the beginning. Right. Then it started to make a lot of money. And I don't think anybody would actually dispute this, but one of the reasons that NBC bought it was that they bought Universal was that there was a license, a, a negotiation coming up. They were out of time on Law and & Order. And Barry Diller is not a person you want to be negotiating with when he's got the cocked and locked 45 and extra clips. Yeah. You know, the, so I think that it was a big factor in NBC eventually owning the okay, city. This is huge. Okay, so this guy, okay, I, you know, so what happened was that when you put, when, when they put Law and Order on the air, when you did the pilot and finally sold it and NBC put it on the air, right. at that moment in time, it was not an auspicious business model, right? Oh, to have uh, this our kind shows? of show. Yeah, an you hour were making show. all the money. They Ex didn't want our shows. Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's right, though. Um, most of the time... <laughs> that most of the top shows were comedies and, and very you couldn't give hours away you could not give an hour away and the, so that's why law and order was actually developed we were looking for shows that could be split in half and sold as half hours because later. the only thing selling into syndication was half, were, hours. Were half hours they didn't want hours yeah they so so when you put law and order on the air there was really no not much hope you were going to make a gazillion dollars <laughs> <laughs> on the back end. Yeah, no, on the back end, on the front end. All, you know, there were no advertisers. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so this is a guy, and this, I have to say, this, this, this is how a lot of hits come about. Somebody just has the passion of wanting to do something that isn't on the air, that should be on the air, and, and the business stuff doesn't really, well, is this going to really make me a gazillion dollars? I don't know, maybe not, but I don't care. I need to put it on the air. I want to put it on the air. Well... I want to stay employed. That's a very well, strong okay. motivation yeah, for most people in the business. I yeah. mean, it's like no show, no business. You know, but you got to... Yeah. It's, yeah. Survival was tantamount, I think, above the purity of the artistic vision. I mean, the, the one thing that I had known by this point, having run other shows, that, you know, network notes are network notes. They're yes, they not are. Uh, dictates. And depending on how intelligent or less than intelligent they are, you have to really get down in the trenches, those, especially the first couple of seasons, and clear out the interference as much as possible and hope you're guessing right. Right. Because if you're not, they don't like not having their notes taken and will That's cut right. your head off. That's right. Um, but I, I just want to say the enormity of what happened here was that you went, when it went on the air, there was really no business model for the for the long term for the back end that that w would light up your no. head. So, but what happened was um, you actually created your own back end, right? Because in in the first cable sale, I mean, yeah, the first uh, cable was sale was A and E, huh? 
Huh? Was A and E. Was A and E for like $169,000 an episode. Right. It didn't even dent the deficit. Exactly. But what it did do was, was it put A and E on the map. And it it brought in in the year after it went on A and E our our audience went up by 30, 40%. Right. So you kind of jump started A and E. Well, a and E really cable was not even a factor in anybody's thinking at that point. And so, um, you know, over time the price of your product went up, and the no, not on A and E. No, no, That's, but the next deal. Yeah, the next deal was no A and E wouldn't. <laughs> they were offered the show, didn't step up, and TNT came in, and you know A and a and E has been very blatant about that was a really dumb decision, mm -hmm. but that's really what happened. So the next deal and the next cable and network the TNT was way was better, much better, way better, much much better. But in the meantime, you're you're boosting uh, A and E and TNT so that you're almost creating your own aftermarket. Well, they'd all been sold though. Uh -huh. I mean, the, the the TNT deal was very good, but it was once it went to TNT. I don't know which came first, chicken or egg, whether it was helping the network, but I do know that when a show is on basic cable and is also on the network, mm -hmm. they usually both go up, and as soon as it's canceled from the network, the cable goes down. That's just a mathematical inverse proportion, I guess. So, I'm just going to say, and, and I don't know whether you want to talk numbers, but numbers were being talked about today. So, the the... the bottom line is that by the time you were done with the things and, and by the time years went by and other cable sales came, you were making what? Like on your afterlife? With well, the, the aftermarket, the, the series prices are actually we, this, the prices on SVU and initially CI on USA were much better than the TNT prices because that was then an owned right. entity with Barry, and he was not about to let them go to right. TNT, who also wanted them. So that's, the, as you well know, that's the type of that's negotiation right. that actually becomes profitable. And in the meantime, NBC, just in the upfront, just in the ad sales, made like, what, $10 billion? Over oh, no, no. The, the three shows, and this was five years ago, but five years ago, the three shows had generated more than $10 billion in advertising revenue. Right. And advertising revenue... And that's revenue, just advertising revenue. No, but advertising revenue is essentially, in my mind, exactly the same as box office gross. Right. That shows you, you know, box office... That's not what comes back to the studio or the producers, but it is an indication of how it's doing in the marketplace. Exactly. And $10 billion is pretty good. All I'm saying is the creative impact and the uh, financial impact, not only to yourself and to your network and to your studio, which became your network, too. Yes. <laughs> not, not only was that huge, but I, just the, the, the way it kind of lifted various kind of segments of the industry so that shows that came behind you suddenly had, had an aftermarket. Well, look, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer, who I've known for 30 years, ain't a dumb guy, and that's what NCIS, he said, oh, well, they did that. Why don't we do this? Absolutely. It, it, it does He should be work. toasting you every day. Well, it's... He's... NCIS did exactly the same thing. Yeah. I'm so jealous because we comedy people cannot um, do like, um, you know, uh, Cheers Cincinnati or... Uh, <laughs> you never know. Or, you know, Seinfeld Criminal Intent. 
That we're developing, actually. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, so just to, just to close before we um, take questions, the, the impact on society, I don't think um, you can overstate the impact that this, I don't think so, that well, this show continues to have and always has had on, on society. I mean, it's very forceful in, in, in the points it makes and in the, in the, in the, 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 just the sheer... Uh, well, the riffs and the headline stuff, the, 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 the subject matter you take on and, and how it's, you take it on. We have managed, I can honestly say we have managed to offend every <laughs> group that represents any group of people on the planet. I mean, the, the only people, somebody said, why do you do so many people, so many shows with uh, rich white people in them? I said, because there's no rich people's pressure group that calls up. (laughs) (laughs) So some of the calls, and this is one of my favorite lines in Law and Order was uh, Jerry Orbach and Chris Noth walking out, and there was a case where a doctor, uh, it was multiple a, a woman was being, people were being impregnated and then the babies were being sold by a doctor to uh, people who were trying to adopt and having problems. And one of the couples was a lesbian couple who just so, just happened to be not only the best looking but obviously the most intelligent couple that they had looked at. And Noth, they walk out of the apartment and Noth is standing there and he says, who's going to teach him to shave? <laughs> the f- glad called on the head of education from GLAD called on Tuesday morning and said, this is outrageous. I said, "What? I don't understand what you're upset about. He said, that's not how you can depict gays or lesbians anymore. And I said, why? They were the best looking couple. They were the best educated. And they said it was no line. He said, oh, come on, you can't be really serious. He said, no, you're going to have to send your entire writing staff in for a re-education course on how to write for gays and lesbians. And as my mouth sometimes does, it sort of opened before I really thought about (laughs) what I said. I said, look, I'm not going to send the writing staff in for some Chinese re-education course. He screamed into the phone, now you're insulting Chinese people. You know, you will offend somebody if you're doing... No, but this is how you know you have an, an yeah, impact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, people it's, are talking. People are... Well, it is a great, or it was a great water cooler show. I yeah. mean, it is, and there aren't that many of them. That's, That's right. What That's right. was fun. Yep. And so it still is. We want to take, uh, we want to leave a lot of time for questions. So, um... I was curious, uh, just about the time that you were starting the show, there was a New York prosecutor who later became famous for sentences that consisted of a noun, a verb, and 9-11. Did you base, did you base Moriarty's role at all on... I mean, he even looks like Giuliani. No, 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 no. And I don't believe... I Maybe I'd have to check. I don't even think Giuliani... I think Giuliani was... Out of, no, no, I know who he... But he was in Washington at that point. I think he had actually stopped prosecuting and was the number three guy in the Justice Department at that point. So, no, it was not based on him in any way. Earlier I heard that on the panels that Law & Order was ahead of its time, that it's very smart politically. Uh, Benjamin Bratt brought up the point that uh, 
you know, you gave uh, people of color and women these slots that were not traditionally given to them at the time. So I guess for me the question is, what is it about your upbringing, your life experiences that makes law and order ahead of its time and so sophisticated? Well, I'm not quite sure whether it was ahead of its time. I think it reflects its time pretty accurately. That um, When the show started, there were more and more women, for example, becoming prosecutors. And the fact is that right now in the United States, more than 50% of the prosecutors are women. Um, it's never, I, I can't honestly say it, from, aside from Warren saying that we had to put women in the show, which I did not inherently object to, it was a question of getting the right women in the show. Um, I mean, Apetha had a 16-year run, and I still think that she's one of the best cop bosses ever. Um, and she was in the first season in another really great episode called Mushrooms where her, both her children were killed in not a drive-by, it was in New York, but a, a shooting because the teenage killer had gone to the wrong apartment because he couldn't read. Yeah. And she had been the mother of that episode. And her performance in that was so, uh, so unbelievable that as soon as... And then she came out... She had done another show for me called Man and Machine where she had also been the police captain. And when Warren said, you got to put women in the show, she was literally the only person who was even considered. I said, oh, we got to get a paper. Um, Jill Hennessy turned out to uh, be enormously popular. And the one thing that was astounding is that after I hired her, because she was Canadian and she'd been singing on the subway in Toronto, and I said, uh, she had been doing some acting, but she came down and I said, by the way, how old are you? She said, 21. I went, oh, <laughs> and, But as we all know, in film, that's a magical age. That, uh, I mean, a lot of great actresses have done incredible work in their early 20s. Yeah. Two questions. The first one's really quick. I wanted to know, during the period when you said the show started taking off, when it went on to TNT, who... A&E. A&E. When, uh, when it started grossing more money, who was the cast that you had during that time? Which cast was it? Well, it was Sam. Let's see. I'm trying to think which detectives. It was still... Because I'm, I'm just not sure whether it was the fifth or sixth season, but I assume at that point Jerry was there... Chris was there, but may have been leaving. Uh, let's see, Sam was the prosecutor, and I guess at that point it was Carrie Lowell who was the ADA with him. Okay, and the other question I have is on the new um, L.A. show. I've been trying to get into it, but I... There's something... Watch Monday Night. What's that? Watch Monday Night. Yeah, it's, there's something about it that seems a little different. It's, I know the format, there was some discussion today about something that was a little bit different. Too Tap. sunny. What is it? It's too sunny. <laughs> too sunny. <laughs> I don't know. I was wondering, are the women in the cast, are they, is there a different way you're dealing with no, them? I, no, I, I no? don't think, um, 
Rachel Tickeden, again, I've worked with over the last 20 years. She is a terrific actress. I think she's doing a great job. Um, obviously, Alana has now joined the cast from the New York show with, I think, a credible reason for being there because she is from Los Angeles and her mother got sick, so she had to come out here. Um, so is there any difference about that show? There's a different rhythm. Yeah, it's still, I mean, Renee, it's the same showrunner this year as the, la as the last two years on Law & Order. Uh, there is a different rhythm. They're in cars more, for one thing. Um, what else? I think that, as I said, anybody who has not seen it should watch this Monday because Alfred Molina, to me, is the best cop on television since Jerry Orbeck. He's terrific. And it was a sort of, it's funny when the press releases actually reflect what was going on, that one of the frustrations was when you have Alfred Molina and Terrence Howard in the same show and you're using them on alternating weeks, it's like, ugh, it's mm. like to see them both. So if you haven't seen the new version, check it out. He's, Alfred is really He's amazing. He's fantastic. Um, one of the things that I think led to the uh, longevity and, and popularity of Law & Order was the fact that you were able to replace one great cast member with another time and time again. Um, when that happened, was it generally uh, a production decision where, where you or the writers felt that a character had run its course or a financial decision? Or no, it, it, almost every single one of them was a different reason. Uh, George Zunza just quit, I mean, after the first season. He said, you can sue me, I'm not coming back. He, you know, he hated being away from his kids, which I understood. It was, you know, it was very bizarre. He was really unhappy. He gained a suit size every other episode. I don't know if you, literally true. He gained like 70 pounds in the first season. So he thought, okay, he'll, and uh, it wasn't so bad getting you know, the, the, the switches in many of the cases were highly beneficial to the show. Um, I mean, it's pretty hard to object about going from George Zunza to Paul Sorvino to Jerry Orbach. Yeah. I don't, does that answer the question? Uh, partially. Uh -huh. I guess some people left because they were just, they had had it. You know, Chris Noth left after five years. Um, most of the people either wanted to do something else or, I mean, almost, I can't remember, I don't think anybody got fired. You know, it was one of these things that they had done a couple of years. The, the ADAs, the female ADAs had a tendency to roll over about after three seasons. It was like they wanted to do something else that, you know, they thought they were going to get their own show, and some of them did, and some of them didn't. How did you decide on Mike Post, and who came <laughs> up with the ding, the intervals? Um, Mike, uh, Mike has every, I've never, actually, that's, I think I've used a composer on, different composer on two shows. He's basically done everything I did, everything that Stephen Boschko did, and, uh, everything that Steve Cannell did. And it was very funny. 
about a year ago, somebody asked him about the Ching Ching. He said, I can't believe it. He said, I've done 43 series. I'm going to be known for, known for two notes. <laughs> but he is an old friend. He, it was because I was on Hill Street before this, and he, was, he worked there. And the Ching Ching, Chung Chung, whatever floats your boat is Tarzan Gel. It's a collection of about six different things. Including a slamming jail door. Hi, this is regarding criminal intent. Can you speak to the the recent changes with Gorin and Eames and your decision <laughs> to bring them back? Uh, it was USA sort of made us an offer that we couldn't refuse. That it was a little odd that before we had a decision on the show. Uh, Jeff Goldblum, I think, thought it was going to get canceled, which he wasn't too crazy about. He said, so I'm going to jump before I get pushed and said, you know, I'd really prefer not coming back. And at that point, I don't know if USA was going to bring it back. Uh, but Jeff Wachtel said, how would you like to do, you know, a final eight? I said, well, I'd hate to think of it that way. He said, well, let's call it the final eight, and if lightning strikes. He said, but, you know, we'd really like to do it with Vincent and Katie. And he said, do you think they'd come back? I went, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, that was a very nice and simple call. Yeah. And they're back, and the, again, the shows are really, really interesting and good, and there is a new character. There's going to be one scene a week with a shrink uh, with Vincent to, or the Goran character to hopefully over the eight episodes he will go from the fractured sort of condition that he left a year and a half ago in the final episode to uh, a healthy revitalized first season detective by the end of the eight episodes and Julia Ormond is going to play that so you know it's Interesting. Yeah. Hi, I'm one of the people that uh, actually discovered, one of the women actually discovered Law and Order in its reruns on A&E in 1995. Never saw it in prime time, just flipped on. And, and uh, the format threw me. I'd never seen a cop show like that. It moved so fast. And it, I couldn't tell if it was documentary or what it was. I had to watch about three of them before I finally got the format. I want to ask you questions about the creative content, if you don't mind. You made a couple of key decisions that I noticed. One is that... Um, you don't ever really get to know anyone in the ensemble other than by what they do. You don't, you don't know a lot about them personally as, as people because um, the way that this, you stay engaged in the story. But two, you do learn about them by the sort of moral dilemmas they get into or the, the kind of uh, difficult decisions they have to face. And I'm thinking of uh, like Paul Robinette had to decide whether he was a lawyer who's black or a black lawyer or some of the, the calls Dennis Farina made as a cop that were edgy, some of the way, you know, Sam Waterston's character played some tough DA decisions. I'm just curious why, why you went... I think it's, it's very reflective of reality, by the way, and that was what was gripping about it, but I was curious why you made that creative call. Well, it's very simple. First of all, there's no time, because if you look at the content, there is enough content in each half of the show to support most normal hour shows. People don't... There are no getting in and out of cars. There's no walking in and out of buildings. There are no establishing shots. It's all very deliberate that you're putting an hour's worth or 
44 minutes of normal content into 22 minutes and doubling it. So there just wasn't the luxury of uh, all the accoutrements that make it easier to produce an hour show, like the drive-in talks and the walk-ins. Uh, the other thing, and I would, and you sort of indicated that, that if you're a really, if you're a regular viewer, it's surprising if somebody asks you what you actually do know about those characters, because what I've always insisted upon is that makes me crazy. In most hour shows, the character stuff is doled out with soup ladles, you know, people wearing their emotions on their sleeve, and we give it to you with eyedroppers. But if, as I said, if you're a regular viewer, you know a lot about Sam Waterston. You know he's divorced, you know his father was a cop, you know he has a daughter that he doesn't speak to. That, you know, all of these things are grace notes that are really not necessary to tell the, the story because what I'm interested in is the moral dilemma that the characters are going through, not really their personal lives, unless it informs what the show is about. And you give them a piece of information that shows, oh, that's why he feels that way, or isn't that interesting? I didn't know that about him, and that has colored his decision making. The biggest one, the 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 biggest find is a story that really gives you a big moral dilemma. Those are the best that uh, where somebody has to do something that goes against their own personal grain. But yeah, it was really deliberate. Not going home with them. Not. But I, as I've said. To a lot of people, okay, you, wherever you work, how many people that you work with's apartments have you been in? How many times have you had dinner with them outside of the office? Not that often. You might have one or two really close friends at work, but it's not the type of situation that you go home and they tell you about their family problems, which is what a lot of our dramas do. Yeah. My question is more of a business side thing. Um, and I, and I watch SVU the most just because the USA marathons just really hook you in and I just can't <laughs> stop. But um, SVU is really interesting to me. It's run, twelve. I think it's in its 12th season now and the four main detectives have been unchanged pretty much. And how does that work um, money-wise essentially is my question. And is that harder to do as, as it goes more on? And It gets more and more expensive. Right, right. And I mean, Mariska is the highest-paid actress on television. That's is she? It. Yeah. Wow. And, okay, that was basically it. <laughs> okay, let me, can I just ask one last question? Okay, just one last question. So you have this incredible juggernaut, you know, series, bunch of series now. What, before you're done with them all, what would you like to do with them? What would you like to happen before it's all over? Well, unfortunately, you know, every show, and you know this, is born under a death sentence. They just don't give you the date of execution. Right. I mean, SVU is still doing pretty well. Will Lola be back? Who knows? I hope so. What's going to happen to CI after this season? See, the USA said it's the last one, but they're not acting that way. I don't know. I mean, the only time... And this is just sort of an historical footnote. The only time that all three shows were going to do something together was a five-hour miniseries that was supposed to start on September 25th, 2001. And if you go back to 
9-11, the front page of Variety is Wolf Brings Terror to NBC, and it was a five-hour miniseries that involved the oh cast of all three shows. Oh this was the opening. An Al-Qaeda training camp in Afghanistan, a bunch of 10-year-olds are in a madrasa saying, God is great, death to America. The older brother of one of them comes into the class and says that he came in to say goodbye because he's going, the teacher says he's going to America to become a great hero. Cut to him and three other guys driving over the New York state border from Canada, going into New York, setting off a bomb under the shuttle, killing 2,800 people, and then releasing anthrax. Wow. The technical advisor on that was John O'Neill, who died in the towers, who was the FBI guy who had actually been chasing bin Laden and had gone to Yemen when the coal was blown up. And I spent a year and a half when we were developing this thing with all of, a lot of the people that were involved in counterterrorism 11 years ago, and everybody knew it was going to happen. Just didn't know when. But, wow. And I, horrible to say, I was sitting in Wayne's one night, and, some, and John O'Neill said, not going to surprise me if they come back after the towers either. Well, this is how intertwined you are with real life. Well, yeah, but that's, I mean, that I would have loved if we had done, but I remember I called Barry Diller, and I had, you know, this was a huge operation. I mean, a five hours, a miniseries that was a double the hourly cost of the series, basically. And I said, Barry, I pulled the plug. He said, well, yeah, that's a good move. I said, you know, I had this vision of, you know, what if we were in the middle of making this thing and this had happened? He said, are you kidding? Suppose that it had run and it had happened. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. So that's a good way to No. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Dick Wolf. Thank you. And thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.